often when I'm preparing for a lesson, somebody will come to mind, right? And I'm like, okay, this lesson is for them. Not that we all don't get it, but uh, so I didn't have that anybody come to mind. So y'all are off the hook because it's not so just you or you. But uh, I, in saying that, I was driving home yesterday and I called my mom. She's 89, lives in Waco, and uh, she's just an amazing prayer warrior. At my office, she's like famous because uh, everybody knows about her. If they have, they're sick or anybody in their family sick or a friend they know, they'll call me or email me. Hey, can you get them on your mama's prayer list, Mimi's prayer list? And so I do. Uh, I've learned to tell them, though, I will do it under one condition, and that's that you keep me updated as to what's going on. I didn't do that to start with when I first started putting names on her list, and eventually I'm driving home and I can hear her. She's got her little book out, the paper, and she's like, tell me about that Alan Ladd. What's going on with him? <laughs> the worst thing, though, this is the absolute worst thing that would happen, because I would forget someone on her prayer list has died, right? So two weeks later or so, I talked to her. She's like, tell me about so-and-so. How are they doing? I'm like, uh, well, they passed away. When did they pass away? Well, a couple of weeks ago. I've been praying for a dead person for two weeks. So anyway, I called her yesterday, and she was discouraged for whatever reason. Uh, she rarely is. And so I was like, what's going on? What's I don't know, I don't know. So she asked me what I was doing and I told her I was, had been working on my lesson, was driving home and she said, what's your lesson about? So I began to tell her about it. And by the end of me telling her about it, she was so encouraged and I thought, well, maybe this whole lesson is for my 89 year old mother. <laughs> but let's jump into it and I'll start with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, the power and the truth that's in it. Thank you, Father, that uh, you're here with us as your word promises. I pray, Father, you'd put the words in my mouth. You would have me to speak, and you'd still the words in my mouth that are not of you. I pray, Father, anything that I speak that bears witness to those that have ears to hear, that will take root in their heart and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about worship and about the series that Alan's teaching. I'd encourage you, if you haven't been here, to listen to it online. Um, in, in, in the lesson I taught about Raise a Hallelujah, it uh, talked about that when we raise a hallelujah, when we worship, it's an outward expression of the relationship we have in our Lord, or with our Lord. It's a reflection of the Holy Spirit working in us. It should impact those around us like a banner or a flag. When we raise a hallelujah, when we're worshiping the Lord, it can't help but affect those that are around us. Not unlike a flag, if you're in the service and, or you, you have an appreciation for those in the service. And I don't know, is Isaiah here? Hey, you want to stand up? Welcome him back. He just got out of basic training. So, uh, you know, you see that flag, and all of a sudden you're reminded of the sacrifice and what took, well, all that took place for us to live in the country we live in. 
When we raise a hallelujah, it should be like that. People should see it and be drawn to it because it declares, I'm victorious through Christ. I have won. The battle has been, been won by the Lord. And then we should be able to worship at all times, regardless of our circumstances. Because of what, it doesn't matter what's going on the outside. It's the inside of us, the relationship we have with the Lord, that should be what's coming out when we're praising Him. And how could we not raise a hallelujah? How could we not praise the Lord when you think about what was done on our behalf, the sacrifice that was made? The word sacrifice, my definition of it is something being given or offered or surrendered for the sake of something or someone else. And you can't think about sacrifice without thinking about this picture. And was there a greater sacrifice than for Christ to come down from heaven and to lay his life down for us? And he didn't deserve it. He did not deserve to be sacrificed. So why was Jesus sacrificed? What was required for him to do that? Well, as Christians, it's pretty uh, ABCs of Christianity, but it's worth going over, especially if you're not a Christian and you haven't heard the story before. But God is perfect. And because he's perfect, sin cannot be in his presence. If you remember when God created the heavens and the earth, and Adam and Eve, he came down and walked with them in the garden. Adam and Eve communed with him. What a great relationship they had, right? With the creator in the garden that God created, they have this relationship with him. Because, because they hadn't sinned, they could have that relationship with God. But then they sinned. And when sin entered into the world, that relationship with him was broken. So what was the answer for God to get this relationship back where he could commune with them, with us, like he did with Adam and Eve when they walked through the garden? Well, the answer is pretty simple, but it came with a great cost. The answer was the sacrifice of Christ. But there was a long time period between the time that Adam and Eve sinned and Christ was resurrected. So that time period, in between the, that time period of man not being able to commune with God like he had been before sin came on the earth, and then Christ coming to earth for those that accept him to have that relationship with him, that's a long period of time. So how was that addressed? How did the Lord address that? Because he wanted this relationship with man. And Christ came in this perfect timing timing wasn't perfect until he came. So during that time, while we were waiting for the perfect time, sacrifices was, was brought into being. And the first recording of a sacrifice is Genesis 4, 3 through 5. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground and offering unto Jehovah. And Abel, he also bought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And Jehovah had respect for Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. 
and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable and Cain's wasn't? Well, we have some insight into to that in Hebrews 11, verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. It would lead you to believe that maybe Cain didn't have faith, that maybe when he was doing his sacrifice, it was not done in the faith of the relationship that he had with the Lord. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to smarter people to figure out. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we come before the Lord, when we to commune with him, we should do it with faith. The scripture says we should boldly approach the throne because of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. And because of what Christ did, we can come to the altar, we can come before the throne and commune with God. If we look forward in the scripture from Adam and Eve, I mean from uh, Cain and Abel, uh, we see that a sacrifice was usually a burnt offering. It was a, a, a cattle or sheep or sometimes it was a bird. Sometimes it was a grain offering. The offering could be a thanksgiving offering. It could be a sin offering. There were other types of offerings. The symbolism was that the life of the slain animal was a form of payment and an acknowledgement for the person's sin. Remember, man's relationship with God is severed. And in order for him to continue to commune with God, what was instituted was sacrifices. The death of an animal, blood covered the sin. It did not remove it. But it made a way for man to be able to commune with God. When uh, this, it's, so the sacrifice didn't do away with the sin. It offered a covering of the sin. Now when Solomon dedicated the temple, listen to this, when he dedicated the temple, he sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 lambs. Can you get your head around that? I mean, dedicating a temple, covering the sin of a nation, and that is what was required for a nation to come into communion with the Lord. From the time the tabernacle was built until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Israelites regularly offered animal sacrifices to God. Why did they do it? To cover their sin, to have this communion with the Lord. The number of sacrifices that they made were staggering. Every day, two lambs were offered one in the morning and one in the evening on behalf of the sin of the nation. And on top of that, the Israelites were commanded to bring offerings for sacrifices to the temple. If you sinned against God or against your neighbor, you brought a sacrifice to the temple. If you became unclean, you brought a sacrifice to the temple. And you had to put a lot of thought into what you were going to bring because if you brought a cow or a, a sheep, the priest that was going to sacrifice that animal would examine it for any imperfections. 
So it wasn't you just went out and grabbed one. I mean, you put a lot of thought and identified which one you were going to bring to cover your sin so you could commune with God. And there were lots of things that could cause you to be unclean. Uh, you could touch something unclean. You touched a dead person, it was unclean. You were to touch a pig, hey, that's unclean. Lots of things identified in the Bible as being unclean would require that you offer a sacrifice. You could have an unclean disease. You could have an unclean sore. By doing one of the many things that could make you unclean, it would require that a sacrifice be made. Imagine how many animals were sacrificed during the Passover. According to the Old Testament, on the Passover, an animal was sacrificed for each family. You're talking about a nation of millions of people. And during the Passover, every family, an animal was sacrificed on their behalf. Christ talks about, I mean, when they talk about Christ coming into Jerusalem as time for the Passover, that's what he came to. I mean, the temple was, in some ways, almost like a slaughterhouse. The sacrifice Sacrifices were required by God for a specific and special purpose. And the sacramental system was consistent, a constant reminder of the consequences of sin. Killing animals can be disturbing. I get it. But that's the point. Man was meant to be disturbed by sin. By the sacrifice of an animal, watching an animal die, and the blood being sprinkled over the altar as a way of covering their sin, how could they not see that and think how, how awful sin is? The scripture says, the wages of sin is death. And that was a point. All this sacrificing was meant to disturb man about their sin. Hebrews 10.3 says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. The sacrifices showed that they were covered, covering the sin, not uh, removing it. Hebrews 9.27 says, Without the shedding of blood there is no remission. In the New Testament when it refers to sacrifice and the shedding of blood, whose blood is it talking about? talking about Christ, right? It's not talking about cattle. It's not talking about sheep. I know I'm going into a lot of detail on this, but I want you to get a clear picture of the wages of sin being death and the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin can't do it. It could cover it, but it could not take it away. All through the Old Testament, we see uh, sacrifices taking place. But in Hebrews 10, 12, and 14, it says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down on the right hand of God, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that sanctify get an amen on that? Amen. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, going back to when they dedicated the temple, 
all those cattle, all those sheep. What would you think if you drove up today and there were 22,000 head of cattle out there in front and 120,000 sheep wandering around our property? You would like, good grief, what is going on here? Uh, doesn't Pastor Allen know that Christ has already died for our sins? We don't have to do a sacrifice? Uh, it's, it's silly to think about that, right? But uh, when I think about sacrifice, I think about, well, you have to have altar sacrifices. And so we, we have altars, right? We think about an altar back in the Old Testament. It's usually rocks that are piled up, or some structure that was put together, and then an animal was sacrificed on top of it. But we have altars in church. Think about before we get the term, come to the altar. The altar is open. The, the idea being that anytime, any place we go to or set aside to meet with God, that can be an altar. Some people call them a prayer altar, right? But we refer to this area up here as an altar. It's just designating a place for you to come and commune with God. And as Christians, we can come and commune with God, and we don't have to have animals slaughtered all around the pulpit, right? So when I, I begin to think about the, the altar, um, to do a sacrifice, you have to have an altar. And my family will be the first to testify that my mind is a little different than most people's. Just things come to mind for me that make sense, and, and when I offer an explanation as to, oh, have you thought about it this way? So when I started thinking about an altar, I thought, wouldn't that, I wonder what, if I were to build an altar, how would I want to build it? What, because it's made of rock, right? So what rock would I choose? And I thought further, it's like, well, what if I could go back in Old Testament days, or go back into biblical times, and I could pick any rocks in biblical times? to use to build my altar. What rock would I choose? What rocks would I choose? Just think about it. Just run through your mind all the different stones and rocks from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And you could pick any rocks, any group of rocks to build your altar. So I decided I want to do that. So. I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to share with you as I build it which scriptures or, or which stones I chose and why I chose them. You with me? Okay. I know this is different, but so the first first stone I would I can pick any of them, right? The first stone I would pick would be from the first mountain that God made when He created the heavens and the earth and created mountains. I want one of those mountains because I want to take that rock and I want to build my altar with it so that when I come before the altar to commune with God I can remind I can come confidently with faith knowing that he will meet me there he was he is and he is to come he's always there Amen. you're never alone so that's the first one I want. The second one I want is from the account in 1 Kings chapter 18. The battle of Elijah and Baal's prophets. Remember that? 
all the buildup, Elijah shows up, all of these uh, prophets of Baal build an altar, and Elijah builds an altar, and they have a contest. And the contest is they each would call upon their God to come down and send fire down to light their sacrifice. So the contest begins. The Baal's prophet, or, or Baal, prophets of Baal, called, screamed, cut themselves, cried out, did everything they could. But nothing happened. So they weren't crying out to a real God. They were crying out to an idol. They were crying out to something that man had made. But when Elijah called out to God, fire came down, it consumed the sacrifice. The fire was so hot, it burned up the stones. It killed all of Baal's prophets. So when I picked this stone and put it in my altar, I'm doing it because when I come before the altar, I want to be reminded that there's only one true living God. Amen. Just so you don't panic, there's only ten of you. <laughs> the third rock I would choose for my altar is from John chapter 7 verse 8 the woman caught in adultery you know the story the man dragged the woman before Christ and demand to know what he's going to do they have stones in their hands they're ready to stone her to death Christ intervenes. And when he intervenes, they drop their stones and they walk away. I want one of those stones on my altar. So when I come before the altar, I come before it knowing that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, intervening for me. Amen. My fourth stone comes from the story in Genesis 21. Abraham and Isaac. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham that he would have a nation. He had so many offspring to be like sands in the desert. <coughs> and then Abraham understands that he's being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. So they head up to the mountain. Isaac began to ask his father, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham would reply, the Lord will And as you know, the story goes, the last minute, the ram cries out from the thicket, and Isaac is lifted off of the altar, and the ram is put on it. I want that, and I want a stone from Abraham's altar, so that when I come before the altar to commune with God, I can do it confidently, knowing the Lord will provide. Okay. My fifth stone from 
my favorite story, I think every time I get to speak, I at some point have to speak on this. My fifth stone is from 1 Samuel 17. I want the stones that were in David's pouch that he carried by Goliath. I want those stones to be a part of my altar because when I come to the altar, I want to come knowing that there is nothing too big for my God. I can bring anything before the Lord and it's not too big for him. The giants in my life must fall. Amen? The walls of Jericho. Remember that story. Great story. They marched around the wall and it fell down and the Israelites defeated the city of Jericho. I want that. I want a rock from the wall of Jericho to remind me that any walls that are built around me must fall. Any addictions, any bondage, any imprisonment, anything that is holding me back must fall by the power of Jesus. In Joshua chapter 3, I want a rock from the memorial that the Israelite people built when they crossed the Jordan River. It's been promised for generations and generations and generations to the Israelites. You will have a promised land. I will bring you home. And when that promise was fulfilled and they walked across the Jordan River and built that monument, so every time they saw it, they knew, God keeps his promises. That's what I want. My altar is a rock from there. So every time I come before the altar, I can be reminded that I serve a faithful God who keeps his promises. He never lies. From John 11, that's where my eighth stone comes from. Lazarus tomb. I don't know that there's any more suspenseful story than reading about Lazarus. Jesus' friend, he's dead, he's in the tomb three days, and Jesus shows up and he says, Remove the stone. And they remove the stone. Can you imagine the suspense of that? And then Jesus cries out, Lazarus! Come forth. I can't imagine what that would be like to have been in that crowd. And he calls out to a dead person, get up and come out. I would have to think there was a time period where, you know, they're looking, they're looking, they're looking. It doesn't say that Jesus kept saying, come on, you can do it. Come on, Lazarus, come on out of there. Lazarus, come forth. He spoke the word. And if we were there, we would see maybe something move in the shadows, and then we would see a dead person having been brought to life. Can you imagine what that would be like? I want a rock from that stone that was placed in 
Lazarus' tomb. So that when I come before my altar, I can do it knowing that nothing can separate me from God as a Christian. The blood of Christ keeps me in communion with God. Nothing can separate it, not even death. This stone. There's a song written about it. <clears throat> it's called the Via Della Rosa. It's the name that was given to the road that Jesus walked down carrying his cross to his crucifixion. I want to rock from that road. I want to rock from that road to sit on my altar to remind me of the first part of John 3.16. For the Lord loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for my sin. I want to be reminded of that when I come to the altar. And my final rock that I chose for my altar is from the tomb of Christ. I want a stone from the tomb of Christ to my altar so I can be reminded of the second half of John 3.16. So that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When I come to the altar, I want to come with faith knowing that I have eternal life through the sacrifice Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. What stones would you have picked? Honestly, when I was preparing this lesson, it was, uh, it was cool. I asked a lot of people, a lot of people. You can ask an Uber driver from Uganda. From Haiti, yeah. And he was like, you be sure to send me your lesson. I want to know what rocks you pick. <laughs> so I'll be faithful to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, it was almost out of control. Like, well, I don't think they want to stay there all Sunday afternoon while I pile rock after rock after rock. <laughs> but those were the 10 stones I chose. And uh, it, was, it was very meaningful for me to go through that process. So. Give some thought to doing it yourself. What rocks would you choose? What would your altar be made of? I want to be clear that I'm not starting a new, uh, what would you call it? A new doctrine that, okay, you've got to build a rock altar in your house. You're in trouble. And otherwise, you're going to have to go out and buy a bunch of sheep and cattle. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the importance of understanding the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. To appreciate that and understand that it came with great cause. And because of that, our sins are forgiven. But they're not covered. So it seems pointless, you know, I built the altar. So uh, it seems pointless to have an altar up here and not have something to sacrifice on it, right? Have any volunteers? 
So, uh, Alan mentioned us, CEO of PEX, it's a software company for retail pharmacy. It was started here by a man in uh, Grand Barry, he's a pharmacist, moved to Fort Worth. They have about 500 employees. And so, one of the things we used to do is uh, we used to give employees a ring on their fifth year, and you would swap out stones. And after 20 years, you'd have a Sapphire in the middle with a big diamond in it and a diamond around it. Now I want to look guilty. <laughs> we used to. You missed that part. <laughs> Honestly, in case someone's listening to this, why did you? People didn't wear it. I mean, we'd invest in it and give it to them, and for the pediatrics, as we call them, they all wear their rings anywhere. In fact, we go to conferences and, like, what do you got? You in some kind of fraternity or something? Uh, but on our, I want to put this, my work room, on my altar as a sacrifice. It has a PDX shield on the side and some of the words that go along with our mission statement. But by putting that on the altar, I'm thanking the Lord for allowing me to be employed and being able to provide for my family and to give to the church. I'm thanking him for putting me in a position to be able to witness to my co-workers and to the industry that I'm in. And I'm committing to him that I will use my work as a platform to proclaim Christ. I'm committing to him that I will use the gifts and talents that he's given me to show that I am favored of God. I think I'm special. And I think all Christians should think they're special. It's a long story. I don't have time to go into it, but I can tell you that the reason I have that ring is because of believing and trusting God, walking away from a profitable company to take a job at a current company making so much less pay and no title, just low man on the telephone. And five years later, I was vice president, then I was president, now I'm CEO. And I didn't get there because of how smart I am. Clearly, I didn't get there because of my looks. I got there because of serving God and being faithful and having his favor. Amen? I want to put my billfold. Committing my finances to the Lord. Jesus spoke more about money than almost any other subject. Why would he do that? Well, I think there's some clue in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the first step toward all kinds of sin. Some people have even turned away from God because of their love for it and as a result have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Without question, throughout the scripture, we are instructed on how to give, what to give to, what our attitudes should be when we give, and we're instructed when you read about what the blessings and cursings can come from giving 
are not giving. There's much truth to the saying, put your money where your mouth is. And it goes hand in hand with actions speak louder than words. The basic principles in the Bible that speak about planting and sowing, reaping and harvest apply to our spiritual lives as well as our non-spiritual lives. For giving to be so important that it's one of the most written things, written about things in the Bible, we should all have a full understanding of what our responsibilities are for giving and for being good stewards of what we are given. This church, Generations Church, was birthed out of a church in Grand Prairie called Shady Grove Church. For a long time, it was called Shady Grove Church. Uh, our pastor and his wife came out of there, they were elders. Uh, and they also served there with uh, a well-known uh, evangelist uh, pastor, Robert Morris. I don't know if anybody heard of Robert Morris. <laughs> Next to the pastor, he's one of my favorites. He went up here to speak. Uh, like, we all have gifts and talents, right? Uh, one of the gifts that uh, Robert Morris clearly has is speaking about living a blessed life. I am not gifted in talking about giving. I'm not gifted in the areas on which Robert Morris is. But I'm reminded of the story in Acts where uh, Philip, a follower of Christ, is instructed by the Lord to go to a chariot where a eunuch was at reading scripture. And Philip asked the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody tells me? There's all kinds of teachings in the world about giving. TV evangelists, and I'm not slamming all of them, and I won't slam any of them by name, but there's so many misrepresentations of how giving should be done. And Robert Morris does the most incredible job of speaking to that in his book, The Blessed Life. Some, some churches go to the fault of not speaking, uh, of speaking all the time about money. Every, every service is about giving, right? Others maybe go to the other side and don't speak enough about it. It's so important, based on the teachings of Christ and the Bible, that we understand giving. And Robert Morris, let me read an excerpt of his book here. There are principles that we have to follow to experience God's highest reward. They are the key to living a blessed life. What do I mean by the blessed life? Being blessed means having supernatural power working for you. By contrast, being cursed means having supernatural power working against you. The days of the blessed person are filled with divine coincidences and heavenly meetings. 
A blessed man may or may not be wealthy by the world's standards, but he enjoys a quality of life that most billionaires would envy. At four separate points in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells those who will obey him that he will bless everything to which they put their hands. That's what the blessed life is like. Everything you touch does well. Blessings permeate every aspect of a person's life. Health, relationships, work, family, emotions, thoughts. Sounds good? Then read on. You're about to discover how to live a life of blessing. A blessed life. The best laid plans of mice and men when uh, I, Alan asked me to speak, I wanted to speak on, on this, at least a little bit, which I have done. And I wanted to buy a book to give away to every family in the church. Well, <laughs> the largest group of the books never came in. I got an email. They were damaged on delivery. They're on their way. And uh, I'm still of a mind to give those away. But I have some up here scattered around and uh, I tell you what if all these get taken before I leave today then when that big shipment comes in I'll be sure every family gets one if they don't then I'll probably just send it on back and say I want my money back <laughs> any of you guys could use a blessed life anybody yeah. you want to vote you can come get it right now there's two over there there's one here there's two here there's a few more. There's two over there. One per household, please. There's one. You better hurry. I'll let you Alright, so when the other books come in. I will bring them and I'll put them up here with Pastor Allen's permission. I'll introduce the subject again just before the lesson won't take much time. But uh, on my altar, I want to dedicate everything that the Lord's given me materially. I want to give that back to Him. And I challenge you to do the same. You read that book, you will not. You will not be able to not give abundantly to the Lord, and for the right reason. On this altar, I'm going to put my wedding ring. It's a symbol of me dedicating to the Lord all the relationships that I have. My marriage, my children, my grandchildren, my friends. I'm dedicating that I will represent the Lord in those relationships. That in those relationships, they will see Christ in me. It's one of the most, probably the most unselfish, it is, the most unselfish act would be for someone to lay down their life for someone. The most unselfish thing is what Christ did. He laid down his life. And when people can live unselfishly, that's when you can see miracles happen in your life. I do weddings, not anything near what Pastor Allen does, mainly family, friends, and friends, and friends. 
but uh, as usual when I do something it's a little different. Uh, so in the wedding at some point I talk about being unselfish and I talk about not keeping score and about how keeping score is one of the most challenging things that can be put into a relationship because when you start keeping score that means that the relationship is not about the other person it's about you what didn't they do for me what didn't they give me once that enters into a relationship you're going to have problems so I actually talk about it and then I'll say to them repeat after me I will not keep score and then I have the groom turn to the bride and say, give me your scorecard. Wow. And I have the bride turn to the groom and say, give me your scorecard. And then I say, throw it away. And they throw it away. But an unselfish life is what I'm committing to the Lord on my altar. And then finally, I take off my watch and I put it represent all of this. On your tombstone, there's the day you're born and the day you're dying. That dash in between, that's our life. And that's what this represents. My life. I am dedicating my life to the Lord in all there is. That's what I want to do when I come to the altar. That's what we should do when we come to the altar Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up. Let's go back to one of the first scriptures that I read. Talking about Abel's sacrifice being accepted because he offered it by faith. By faith, Abel offered the sacrifice. We have a if you commune with the Lord like you're sitting, you're sitting in an altar. But I want to encourage you to take what little bit of time we're going to spend here, just a few more minutes, to think about what Christ did for you. If, when we talk about never being separated from God because Christ died for our sins, that applies to those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, then you still have this separation of sin between you and God. And if you want to begin to commune with God, because when you become a Christian, not only are your sins forgiven, but you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. You don't become God, but God lives inside of you. And everywhere you go, every step you take, every thought you can be in communion with God. So if you're not a Christian, I want to lead you in a quick prayer so that you can leave here today with that sin not separating you from God. So y'all repeat after me. Everybody say it. Christians, non-Christians, if you want to accept Christ. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I accept you, Lord Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died 
believe you were in the tomb for three days. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you now sit at the right hand of God. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Amen. If you pray that for the first time, or the first, this is the first time you prayed it, really meant it, then your sins are forgiven. You now have this relationship with the Lord. And you can come to the altar freely, knowing you can come by faith, just like Abel offered by faith his sacrifice. You can come to the altar and offer your sacrifices freely, knowing they are accepted. If you're an unbeliever, I mean, if you're a believer, then I'm going to challenge you to think about the stones that I put in my altar and the things that they remind me of. And you think about the stones you would put in your altar if you did it. You think about the stone I had for Lazarus. Does Jesus call to you and said, come out! And you haven't come out? Maybe you came out and accepted Christ and you went back in. Well, now is the time for you this day, even with this altar, to rededicate your life to Christ. To build an altar. To lay down an altar. And to give your life to Can I get an amen? Can I get a hallelujah? Raise a hallelujah. Thank you. Altar's open. Ask the prayer team to come forward if you would. I appreciate your patience and attention. Thank you.